Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. I'm your host, Neil Kiernan. Um, I will also have with me today my guest, Aaron Moritz. Say hello, Aaron. Hi, everybody. Um, before we get started, I'm actually planning to play some brief words from George Carlin. Uh, there will be a little bit of profanity, just a heads up. Now, to balance the scale, I'd like to talk about some things that bring us together. Things that point out our similarities instead of our differences. Because that's all you ever hear about in this country is our differences. That's all the media and the politicians are ever talking about, the things that separate us, things that make us different from one another. That's the way the ruling class operates in any society. They try to divide the rest of the people. They keep the lower and the middle classes fighting with each other so that they, the rich, can run off with all the fucking money. Fairly simple thing happens to work. You know anything different, that's what they're going to talk about. Race, religion, ethnic and national background, jobs, income, education, social status, sexuality, anything you can do, keep us fighting with each other so that they can keep going to the bank. You know how I describe the economic and social classes in this country? The upper class keeps all of the money, pays none of the taxes. The middle class pays all of the taxes, does all of the work. The poor are there just to scare the shit out of the middle class. Keep them showing up at those jobs. So I selected that quote actually largely because of the fact that it reflects more of what it is that has come to concern me about the way that certain activists have been interacting lately. Um, If you look back also, I mean, I thought about doing this, but the clip was way too long, but I actually have a clip specifically about this issue that I took out of um, Patty Jo Shannon's Capitalism and Other Kids Stuff, Um, and it's called The Kindergarten Game, How States Form and Why, Uh, at least the clip is anyway. The Kindergarten Game was a portion of that uh, brief documentary put together by the World Socialist Movement wherein they discuss, you know, a theoretical kindergarten where a character named Rex goes out of his way to make sure that he has control over all the toys in the kindergarten. And one of the first major steps that he takes is to divide and conquer everybody, uh, you know, basically separating them by race, by gender, by religion, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And I think that the other thing that comes to mind is just that in recently in watching how things have been unfolding, not just, you know, in the zeitgeist movement, not just in the Venus Project-oriented activism, and and even in Occupy, actually Occupy is where this, this trend I noticed started, there seems to be an attitude that is taking root that is causing that very effect, that it's dividing people. It's keeping people from working together. It's getting people to focus exactly on what George Carlin just mentioned, which is the differences. And that's never been the way things were done in the Zeitgeist Movement or in the Venus Project. You know, um, in any of the time that I've ever talked to him, you know, it was very clear, I mean, to Fresco, for example, it was very clear that, you know, while we do support equality with gender, you know, we're not feminists. While we do support equality between all the races, we don't approach civil rights activism in the way that it's being suggested. We don't spend a bunch of time analyzing who's privileged and who's not, you know, who has this benefit, who doesn't, who's oppressed and who's not, because we recognize that everybody is oppressed in one way or another, and that it's all systematic, essentially part of, you know, built into 
the, the monetary system and is more or less a symptom of that. You know, and, I, and I've been, like I said in my first radio show when I came back, and I, I said the same thing during the time when I had Brandy and, and EJ on a long time ago, was that when you, a lot of the things that I feel are being identified as specific uh, to gender or race issues, they go on in other countries where those, you know, where, where there is no race issue. Like, you know, when I mentioned earlier, uh, Mexico has a serious income gap, and there's no white people to blame that on. You know, uh, South America has a huge income gap, and once again, there's not really any white people to blame that on. Africa has a huge income gap. You know, it plays out over and over again that the real issue, at least in my view, is that the wealthy want us divided and that race or gender or religion or creed are just useful tools to get us all fighting each other over the scraps that they'll throw off the table. And if we allow ourselves to continue to think in terms of race and gender, we're only inviting that issue into our own activism. And initially, I think a lot of people who got caught up in what's now being called social justice, they did so you know, believing that they were doing a good thing, but it's turning into almost an oppressive force unto itself. And the privilege issue that people are concerned about just seems to get passed over to, to other groups of people. Like when I was in Occupy Detroit, you know, there was a time ex um, at one point when they had had their first meeting that they were kind of proud and it was an accomplishment that they made sure that no white males were allowed to speak to the media. Um, and it didn't, it, I guess, the way that this is really starting to bother me is that it's turning into it to be acceptable to be racist against white people, but that's okay. We'll just change the definition of racism so it's not racism anymore. It's acceptable to be sexist against men, you know, um, and the the slippery slope is the way I describe it in that you set out to try to bring things to equality, but there's this rubber band effect that seems to try to pull you away from equality, and whether you notice it or not, it doesn't take long before you just outright hate the opposition, and then you almost kind of wish that things were not equal. And even if you're not doing it consciously, I'm noticing a trend that there definitely is not an equal approach to bringing about the changes that are supposed to benefit everyone. And that's just the foundation of why I wanted to have this conversation. And I brought Aaron on because Aaron technically, you know, also represents a different minority that is getting involved in all of this stuff, you know, Aaron being gay. And also because Aaron and I have had some great conversations about this topic and I wanted to share, you know, give him opportunity to share his point of view on it because I think both of us see some dangerous trends that seem to be moving forward and what they would what they would label as less leading activism. So, Aaron, why don't you take a moment and share your point of view? Yeah, sure. I, uh, I'm already just, like, jotting little notes down, so I remember the things you touched on. Uh, the, the, the first issue you talked about, which I agree with, is that a lot of this stuff, a lot of what is being talked about in social justice circles as racism, as sexism, has to do actually with classism and with the monetary system and wealth inequality and income gaps and like a lot of the problems that we see in black communities and in in, in worse outcomes for black people in general and statistical um, information that gets pointed to is black people are doing worse and this is evidence of racism. A lot of that is because black people live in lower income areas and are just 
subject to all of the oppressions that come with not having any money in a system that requires you to have money to do anything. Um, but I don't think classism accounts for all of it. I think that having the discussion about which parts of it are just racist, are just people having unconscious biases or ways in which various structures in the society are set up to disadvantage uh, people of color is a worthwhile conversation to be having. Like, I I get your point that um, focusing on that to the exclusion of all else and just making a huge effort, which I do see in these social justice activists, to divide everything on lines of race or um, ta- ta- every conversation has to be racialized and every um, thing you say has to be considered from your racial point of view. It, it gets really, really odd and 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 kind of gross when when it every, every single conversation comes down to like oh your your opinion on this doesn't matter because you're white or like you you can have no opinion on this but i think i i i'm just saying like i don't want to completely remove race from the conversation i think talking about and addressing things that are specific racial issues like the police issue is the one that always comes to mind for me um, that, you know, it, as a white person walking around in New York, if I was there, I'm far more likely to be stopped by the police than a black person. Like, I'm not going to be pulled over because of the color of my skin, and I probably won't be worried for my life if I get pulled over. But black people do have to worry about those things. And it might have it might tie in with classism in some ways, but the the, the surface of it is that that is happening because they're black. That's what the that's what the the trigger is. That's what the difference is between them and me. Right. Well, and and I don't deny that that's going on. Um, but I think that the the big picture part that tends to fall on them is that, or fa- fail them, is that while the race is a descriptor, so to speak, that leads to a certain prejudice when you're a police officer, what they're looking for is poor people. You know, like, when they can figure out that you're poor, whether you're white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, immediately there are all kinds of assumptions about that. Um, And that's why, you know, for example, when I was a a poor white kid growing up in Pontiac, I didn't really get treated any differently than anybody of color. Um, I was still harassed, and there were a lot of profiles made mostly because I had a long I had long hair and I dressed in a lot of you know like heavy metal regalia so everybody always assumed I was on drugs or whatever. And it isn't to say once again that no they're correct that, that race is certainly being used to profile, but the motive behind it is more connected to the idea that, you know, I understand those people to be poor. You know, I remember I drove a beat up car back then and we were driving out of Pontiac into Waterford and we were being Pontiac's a basically it was a low-income neighborhood and Waterford was a middle-class neighborhood. And we were immediately tailed by a cop. Um, he didn't end up pulling us over, but it was pretty clear he was just waiting for an excuse to do so because he followed us to the entire, like all the way through Waterford to the border of a different city. I want to say it was Kego Harbor. You know, and the the understanding is, well, here's a beat-up car. Must be some poor people from Pontiac coming out of Pontiac to deal drugs in Waterford. Um, you know, was the assessment I would have at least gathered for them to be, you know, more or less chasing us through the entire city. And I think that um, there are actually 
and another point I would point out is that there are actually some interesting points being made by uh, people on YouTube, you know, who come from those communities. I think that's another major point that I would make, and I, I think I said this in one of my earlier broadcasts, but was that some of the most coherent and sensible conversations that I've had about this issue come from uh, black people who live in those uh, communities and recognize that the stereotypes that they're getting hit with, you know, are partially due to their own lack of interest in solving the problems in their own communities. Like they bring up, for example, you know, if we don't want people to associate us with certain crimes, we need to do something about those crimes that really do happen in our communities. You know, if we don't want people to associate with us with certain behaviors, then we need to make sure that our children are educated. We need to stop, you know, targeting people for violence. And, you know, that's why I think uh, this was actually one of the police officers responded after one of the shootings. I think it was one of the chiefs or whatever. He said, you know, I really wish you guys were anywhere near as interested in the violence that gets met out, you know, black-on-black -black violence that gets met out, you know, constantly. And he brought up that a little four-year-old like four girl or something had been shot in a drive-by shooting, you know, but there were no marches for that. You know, this is the tragic death of a four-year-old child. There was no attention given, essentially, to black people shooting black people and a little girl getting killed, you know, but there was this enormous uproar and a need for activism if a police officer shoots a black person, you know, and everybody just kind of shrugged that off. I think it was actually Douglas Millett who, who linked that, and I, you know, and I, I read the article and I, I listened to the guy. And I think he makes a very valid point: was that it seems like there's this mentality that we need to deal with, you know, the the circumstances involving, you know, police shooting black people, which is obviously a tragedy, but there is not um, an understanding of you know, what needs to be done within those communities to solve far greater problems. Um, I mean, do you understand what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, did you, I, I sent you a link to a, a video a week or two ago, but it's uh, John, John, uh, John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry, I believe, um, two, two black um, professors from, I believe, uh, Yale, one of them, and uh, Brown University, I think. Um, I don't they know if do, I've had a chance to look at it yet, but go ahead and describe they're, it. They're 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 both kind of conservative guys, or they they get labeled as conservative. But they, he was basically making the same point you are, um, where he was saying like Black Lives Matter, uh, the movement. If if they want to be taking a look at what's taking a lot of Black lives now, yes, let's talk about police uh, discrimination and police um, focusing on black people to the exclusion of all others, like black people get arrested far more often for the same crimes as white people or drug crimes, um, even though they commit them the same amount of times. But more black people are being killed in black on black violence due to like extreme poverty in these, these ghettos. And why doesn't Black Lives Matter address that issue? And he, he doesn't get a lot of traction with that. And you can tell he kind of has a bit of a chip on his shoulder about it. But um, yeah, it's, 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 not, uh, it's not something that gets, um, it's not something that's going to win you any points in the current climate to talk about that. But it's, it's obviously a real issue that like there is a lot of black on black crime. And I think it does eventually have to be traced back down to uh, class issues that you can say, yeah, those those trace back to racist structures in the past, and like black people don't have a lot of property because they were slaves 
for a long time when they were here, and that that imbalance in wealth persists. But um, that doesn't necessarily say how to address it now, and how to address it now I don't think can come from white social justice activists. It has to come from black people addressing issues in their own community. Um, and I, I, I don't really want to pass a lot of judgment on that, but I think that I'm glad to see people like that speaking out and making those issues known because I think it's important that those things do get dealt with. Well, it's interesting that though it does end up getting you labeled conservative, if you have that point of view at all, like as I, I notice the reactions that I get in different Facebook conversations I have, sometimes not on like my V Radio associated stuff, like I might be talking about it on my actual like normal account. And then they'll assume that just because you don't jump right 100% under the bandwagon that you thus therefore must be a conservative. And I actually mentioned that in one of my return broadcasts, is that I don't like the way that the the system seems to be oriented that if you follow X, then you are immediately also following X for everything else. You know, for example, if if I think that, um, for example, I'm pro-gun rights, that must therefore mean I'm also anti-health care. Um, <laughs> Even though I don't, I don't hold those positions at all. I don't, you know, I do think people should be allowed to own guns, but I am also completely in support of healthcare for everyone. Um, but you're kind of understood that if you believe this thing, then you must therefore believe that thing. Um, and that goes also with like membership in in these other groups. Like uh, one of the things that started me down the path of investigating all this was, you know, don't you dare ever, ever in any way. Uh, speak out in any fashion against any facet of the way feminists are behaving or you're immediately an MRA. Um, and I still have a screenshot of the conversation because it was so shocking to me that there were some members of the Occupy movement that I used to be very good friends with that I camped with and, you know, and marched with. And, and I can't even talk to any of them anymore because they were, I guess they were trying to get these, these MRAs meetings shut down. And I said, hey guys, I understand that you're you don't agree with them, but aren't you kind of infringing on these people's rights to peaceably assemble? And they just shredded me. Like, you know, you're, you know, you're an MRA and you hate all women and all this other crap. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, at the time I wasn't even familiar with what the MRAs were. It was a very like George Bush, if you're not with us, you're with the terrorists attitude about these things. And, and I, I noticed also that they kind of formed like a club, like, the feminists and the racial activists and the um, sexual orientation activists and the transgendered activists are all this one big club and they get together and they, you know, all collectively complain about the male white oppression, you know, and yeah, yeah. Um, go ahead. The, uh, the um, MRA thing, I, talked about before on an episode of my podcast and the the slogan that gets thrown around when they're trying to uh prevent them from having uh places to talk about their ideas is no platform for misogyny and trying to be a little provocative i was just like i think yes platform for misogyny like we, we and i also wrote an article about free speech and my main point is just we need to encourage people even that we're disagreeing with to share their ideas. Number one, because I want to know what they're thinking. Like I am interested in what these fairly substantially large groups of men uh, who believe that 
their rights are being seriously infringed on in society today. I, I want to know what they're doing and what they're talking about. And I want to get those ideas out there so that people can talk about them and discuss them and which parts are actually valid and which parts maybe aren't so valid. And the the idea of shutting down speech and preventing people from talking and all that, I really, really have a strong reaction against it. And like on the other part of it for me is like the example I really like to use is the Westboro Baptist Church because um, because I am gay, and so it's it's uh, easier for me to talk about that because I have like I have I have the 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 cred or the, like they can't say oh you know you're just a straight person telling gay people or this so um, it's it's the it's the one area where I where I get say with uh, social justice people um, and I I see the Westboro Baptist Church as ultimately having like a really positive effect on gay rights in the country because they just became these whipping boys, these people. And anytime you wanted to point to the worst, the worst version of homophobia, you're like, look at these people with their God hates fag signs. Like they're the worst. There's so many articles, always pictures taken of them. They're just trashed and trashed and trashed. And I, I feel like the Westboro Baptist Church did did a lot to further gay rights in America because of just being as terrible as they are. And I'm glad that they were allowed to be as terrible as they are in public and that nobody was preventing them, that the courts didn't prevent them, that they, that um, their free speech wasn't halted. Because I think ultimately it was beneficial. And I think ultimately most free speech is beneficial, even if I don't agree with the ideas. Well, and that's actually an excellent point, was that the effective activism of people like Martin Luther King was about making it abundantly clear who the bad guys are. Um, you can't behave in any way like the bad guys and get the sympathy. You know, um, the Westboro Baptist Church makes it extremely obvious who the bad guys are. Um, and I, I, that actually kind of segues into another conversation I had that kind of bothered me was it was actually like at an atheist group um, that had like little to do with anything racial but Black Lives Matter I guess was going around shutting down like uh, freeways like just walk in the middle of traffic and then get all the traffic to stop and the the question that was posed to the group because it's more or less kind of like a you know a debate or you know conversation group was you know should these people be arrested for that and some of the responses that I heard were pretty rough, but more or less people were like, well, yeah, I mean, they're, you know, they're blocking traffic. They don't get some special right to do that, et cetera. But, you know, some of the people in, who were more supportive were saying things like, you know, um, fuck your destination. There are things more important than where you're going. And, and, and my response to them was, you know, <laughs> if you want people to be sympathetic to your cause, this is probably the last way to do it. I was like, you know, you do something like this, you make people late for work, you know, you make people late for family functions, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that was one of the first, you know, people who said, you know, fuck your family functions. There are things more important than your destination was actually the response to that. And I was like, okay, but family functions could be something like my daughter needs to get to the hospital. <laughs> you know, it could be something, you know, and ironically, after I pointed that out, somebody said, actually, yes, uh, you know, I had made an appointment for my daughter to a neurologist to make sure she didn't have, like, you know, a serious condition, and we didn't make the appointment. It took me three months to get the appointment, you know, because I'm low income and I'm on Medicare or Medicaid, and I know exactly what that's like. You know, if you are on Medicaid, sometimes it can take a long time to get in to see a specialist. 
And, you know, they didn't even care. Like, I mean, they were silent about it. But it doesn't occur to them that blocking traffic, you have no idea who it is, essentially, that you're getting the attention of. And it's not necessarily the kind of attention you want. You know, um, it, that's, it was very self-defeating. And, and if you in any way spoke against what, they, what it is that they were doing, it's clearly because you were racist. You know, um, and redefining what racism is is another thing that I, I find constant in all of this. Um, they can make you racist now no matter what you say, no matter what you do. Just disagreeing with them is enough, just like it was with feminism. Just disagreeing with them with feminist issues is enough. Um, if I don't approve or appreciate some form of activism that they participate in, then it must automatically mean that I therefore despise all black people and despise all women. Um, that's, I think, what uh, what scares me the most about it, particularly when Zeitgeist members or Venus Project activists get involved in this sort of stuff, because it's a complete breakdown of critical thinking. They are completely thinking emotionally. They're not analyzing the big picture. And this is actually because, like, before I went to Venus, Florida, I was still kind of on board with the idea that we needed these these branch groups, so to speak, to address, you know, what I now understand to be symptoms of a greater problem. You know, but Jacques kind of won me over when he, you know, he just pointed out that you you go out for one group, at, and then it, it, initially it becomes just because you're trying to bring equality to that group, but eventually you find yourself in activism that is at expense of other groups. Your problems become the only problems. You know, like I remember when that group was uh, kind of like occupying on that one campus, and then the the attacks in France happened. And this group of kids who were protesting, like they being mistreated, you know, for racial reasons in their view on campus, were really upset that they weren't getting attention anymore because, you know, the the assaults in Paris were being talked about instead. You know, <laughs> that's I think partly like a perfect example of what I mean when it becomes more important that you get your message out there than anything else to happen. And as soon as that happens, as soon as you're that caught up in that fanatical, you can't have rational conversations with these people very long. It, it doesn't take long before, you know, you're disagreeing with them, and then suddenly, because of that, you know, the the personal attack just starts flying, you know, um, and it actually, ironically, reminds me a great deal of what it's like to talk to, like, Trump supporters, <laughs> you know, or extreme conservatives. They're so emotional that you can't even have a rational discourse with them about what it is you're discussing. Um, and I think that, you know, in addition to that, like you said earlier, you know, they'll, they'll have ways just to, like, kind of, you're, you know, you're not allowed to have an opinion about this because of this, or you're not allowed to have an opinion of this because of that. And, you know, I was reading the comments on the the blog that you linked with the title, It's Time to Consider a Curfew for Men by Feminist Current. And I shared some of those. And I noticed that as they were kind of dissecting ways to figure out how to discredit anybody that didn't like the article, you know, it was like, well, yeah, you're gay, but you're a cisgendered man, so you don't understand. You know, like they have some way to label you, no matter what the situation is, as in some way being too privileged to grasp their point of view. And if only you were oppressed like them, you'd get it. I mean, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, and like, yeah, there's... Um a term that gets thrown around within social justice circles, because, you know, like we, we talk about all these things and there's like the absolute worst offenders of it. And then there are people who are more in the middle or who have more 
nuanced views, which I think are actually the majority, but they just happen to not be the loudest people, which tends to happen a lot with a lot of groups, the least informed or the loudest. But um, there's a term that gets thrown around called the oppression Olympics. That just means, you know, people scrambling to present themselves as being the most oppressed. Like, oh, well, you're you're a black woman. Well, I'm a gay black woman. Oh, all of you. I'm a transgendered gay black woman. Like it's it, it it gets pretty ridiculous at that point. Um, but I wanted to bat, uh, jump back to the uh, definition of racism sure. uh, issue because I think. Like their definition or the, the the new definition of racism that they're trying to spread is, um, as you said, like you can't be racist against white people because white people have the power in society right now. So so you can be you can discriminate against white white people or you can have prejudice against white people, but you can't be racist. And I mean, to me, it's kind of a silly distinction to try to make it, it it's, it's a rhetorical trick to be able to say you can't be racist against white people but the the thing that they're actually talking about that there are structures in society right now that benefit white people to the exclusion of other people is real but i don't think that trying to get everybody on board with changing the definition of racism is necessarily the best way to make that point. Like we can just talk about structures in society that benefit white people that exist. Um, like, like I know at my workplace, I, I see this all the time. All the people who are in the upper tiers in management, or I want to say 95% of them are all white people. And the people who are lower down are people of various other backgrounds, Asian immigrants, brown people of different um, sorts. And it's very rare that I see those people moving up, whereas I see white people moving up very easily. And where even I see myself getting a very easy time on certain things that I don't see people on a similar level to me getting an easy time who aren't white. Um, so I, like, I see those things in my daily life. So I know, I know they exist, but at the same time, I don't think that making this blanket statement that you can't be racist against white people is, is helpful because there's just obviously people who are racist against white people, especially in some of these activism circles. Well, right. And that's my biggest problem with it, um, once again, it's not to say that racism doesn't exist. My problem is is that the way it manifests, it turns into a get-out-of-jail-free card to be racist if you happen to be a person of color or to be sexist if you happen to be female. It doesn't turn into some kind of tool that's going to help white people get it. It just basically gives angry activists an excuse, you know, uh, some sort, some form of sympathetic excuse to get away with saying white people this, males that, which is the same kind of crap that started all these problems in the first place. And actually, the, what scares me about it even more than that is that I noticed that it almost feels like a social engineering attempt to just turn the clock in the other direction, not to make things, not to make the scales equal, but to just pop them in the other direction. And that's how it ends up creating problems because then you just there's see privilege a, in the other direction. Yeah, yeah. There's there's like specific um, p- 
people will specifically admit that that's what they're doing. But the idea is things are so tipped in one direction now that we have to, in some sense, be uh, uh, tipping them back in the other way. So we have to kind of disadvantage white people in order to make it so that things are equal. It's this idea, like when you talk about privilege, um, I, like my view on privilege is that privilege is actually like a good thing. Like I'm, I'm, I'm glad that people have privileges. And I think that anyone who doesn't have a particular privilege because of any group that they're a part of, like the problem is that they don't have the privilege. But a lot of times it's seen as a problem that white people or that men or that whoever do have a privilege. I don't know if I'm explaining this very clearly, but um, the I think the idea should be raising people up so that we all enjoy these same privileges, not that it's it's wrong that white people enjoy them or that men enjoy them or that white women enjoy them. Like uh, white women get a lot of uh, criticism as well as being white feminists. That's a that's a term that gets thrown around for any time a white fem a white woman is seem to be being kind of racist or as you mentioned uh even a gay man because I'm still a cis a cis man who's white like that's that that can be an area of criticism against me right. and one one other thing I just wanted to mention and I'll let you talk but I I noticed one of the hashtags on this episode you made was tra- transgendered with an ed on the end mm-hmm. and I think that's actually considered a microaggression. Just so you know, they, you you can't have oh, the wow. ED on the end. ED, <laughs> um, they are transgender, but not transgendered. Um, I'll be sure to fix that because that yeah. wasn't my intention, but it, it is kind right. of ironic considering what we were discussing earlier. And, uh, yeah, just so you know. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll fix all that. Um, I think, uh, no, I get it. And, and if you don't have to worry about me, you know, getting time to talk, we have plenty of time, but regardless... Um, when it comes to the the way these things manifest is, you know, when you said the oppression Olympics, it keeps bringing me back to the uh, the modern education video that that guy made. Um, unfortunately, his name is escaping me, but I'm sure I've shown it to you. Um, he also made a video called Equality, which is like in this dystopian future where they've killed off all the white males. <laughs> oh, sorry, all the straight white males. Is that a straight white male? That's impossible. We killed them years ago. Um, in the, the in the modern education video, basically they they're in a math class and um, they're tallying up who's going to do you know whoever did best on this report or whatever is going to get to go to some you know major mathematics some you know summit and then you know after they've actually graded all the papers then they get to determine through privilege points you know who gets to go to the summit and you know the the whole thing is meant to be a parody. But at the same time, it was, to me, startlingly accurate in in a way to what really goes on when you get involved in conversations with these people. Like the white male in the room, ironically, because the main character in the story is not a white male. He's a, an, I think he's Indian, uh, like Middle Eastern. And, you know, the white male in the room says, stop being so racist to him at one point in the conversation, even though the guy hadn't said anything about race at all. Um you know, the the girl in the room, you know, like just starts listing off, you know, the various things that she's done that make her more oppressed. And instead of it being, you know, this is the this is my oppression, this is my uh, my burden, it ends up becoming, you know, these are this is the number of clubs that I'm part of. Look how special I am, you know. And 
the reason that this becomes an issue when you go to activist groups is like the way it was at Occupy was that, you know, like I said, the privilege just moves in the other direction. And we're supposed to believe somehow that that's going to stop, that they're not going to want to stay that way. But then when you read and you, you peel away the layers of where a lot of these ideas that the more moderate feminists and more moderate civil rights activists are parroting, you start to find out that a lot of those ideas come from some people who don't have, by any means, any interest in equality. You know, like that professor who, after the uh, the Katrina disaster, said, you know, we need a solution to the problem, and the solution to the problem is exterminating all white people. You know, turns you know, come to find out, he used to be a professor of black studies or something. Um, I think it was in Virginia University. Um, you know, and then that feminist blog that you linked earlier that was discussing, you know, we just need to have a, you know, there just needs to be a curfew for men so that we can keep women safe. You know, men, it should be illegal for men to be out past a certain point, you know, and they don't realize that by swathing with this broad brush when they make statements like that is that I'm sure you could probably expect that there were some small towns in the South at one point that were thinking that there needed to be a curfew for Negroes. You know, and I'm sure that if you talk to some of the racists that still exist today, they'd be all on board with the idea of a curfew for Negroes. After all, all the statistics say that they're, you know, this and that. So, you know, they, they don't recognize that they're basically falling into the same trap as the people that they claim to oppress and that they're alienating more people than they're ever going to unite. And more to the point, as I said earlier, the, the, the most tragic part about all this is how quickly people's rational thinking gets dissolved. You know, like that was another thing that came out in the, the modern education video. You know, the, the female says back to the, the Indian male, he says, she's like, you could just keep talking about your facts and your truths, but what about feelings? You know, like literally just exposing to him, well, we're not going to discuss the truth here. This is about our feelings. And <clears throat> once again, is this is becoming apparently like just this is the thing. This is the way stuff is going down at colleges. What scares me the most about that actually was, uh, and, and once again, you know, don't ever, don't ever speak against anything or you're immediately labeled, you know, the opposite. But there was a feminist professor named Christina Hoff Summers who now, if you even bring her up to a feminist, she's immediately, oh, well, screw her, you know, she's discredited, blah, 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 blah. But what she described going on on the campuses a long time ago, like back in the 80s, was that essentially people with these very extreme views were becoming professors, getting tenure, so that they could write textbooks and get their viewpoints as becoming the mainstream. And I was thinking, man, that sounds pretty crazy. Could that actually happen? And then I got into an argument about race with somebody on, once again, my non-activist Facebook, only to be corrected and said, oh, no, no, they're right, because, you know, I read it about, you know, I learned about this in college. It's in my textbook. And that, at that point, if you're basically willing to go so far as essentially to rewrite the educational system, once again, you're, you're heading in a direction of social engineering that is just as bad as any of the quote-unquote, scientific journals that were trying to say that Negroes were inferior. It's just as bad as, like, the, the fake Tuskegee uh, science study that they did to try to disqualify blacks from being pilots. You know, when you're willing to essentially create pseudo-intellectual crap to go along with your agenda and to pollute the scientific process, to, to, to 
basically be shaped in your direction. You know, you're heading in the exact same direction as, you know, the Nazis were when they were demonizing the Jews. Um, go I, ahead. I, I, yeah, I, I don't think it's that bad. I think the potential for it to get that bad right, is, I agree with that. exists. I agree. And I, I think, because um, I actually, like, my, my take is that the academic sources on this kind of stuff are generally, generally a lot more reasonable and generally a lot more uh, nuanced and interesting than the way that those ideas get filtered down into the average feminist or the average person talking about these issues on Facebook. So I, I actually don't mind that they exist in academia i don't i don't think they're going to fully take over um although they're like some of the stuff going on in colleges right now is pretty crazy and, and we can talk about that in a sec but um i just want to talk about that modern uh what is it modern education that's what it's yeah, the reason I, I pronounce it that way is that it's spelled wrong on purpose right right oh yeah because it's, it's not really an education um the uh the you mentioned right after talking about that that if you peel away some of the layers on some of these ideas people are talking about like you mentioned the black professor who actually advocated for i guess white genocide in some context i, I don't know uh that that specific issue but the the reason one of the reasons that i get nervous talking about these kind of things is that um, I want to say a, a, like a large percentage of the criticisms, like and even saying some of the same things we're saying, which which doesn't make them wrong, but uh, a lot of the people making criticisms of these social justice people are actually far right, like white nationalists. I've, I've been listening sure. to this podcast recently called Red Ice Radio, and they um, he's it's a guy from Sweden, and he just. Uh, identifies as an ethno-nationalist, someone who wants to keep white countries for white people and believes there is a white genocide going on right now through interbreeding and immigration and all that kind of stuff. And um, I, I always want to be very careful to not be lumping myself in with those people. And I know that that's a foregone conclusion as soon as we criticize, as you keep pointing out, anything that comes from feminism or, or other anti-oppression uh, activism, but that that danger is there, I guess. And and the the you mentioned Donald Trump earlier, and it's it's the same kind of thing. There there's a very real pushback against this kind of stuff happening on a on a um, massive scale. Like there's college professors writing articles all the time about how they don't like what's going on in the college campuses right now. And the more populist arm of that reaction to feminism, to social justice is the, the far right people and the Donald Trump supporters and that, that arm of it. So while I agree that there's, there's a lot of uh, the pendulum swinging too far in the opposite direction in terms of anti-racism, anti-sexism, uh, when I respond to that, I, I just want to make sure I don't swing back too far to the other side. And I'm not saying you are, and I'm not saying um, and anything specific, but I, I just think it's important to not be falling in line with the men's rights activists or with the Trump, the Trumps or the, the, the European far-right nouveau-fascist nouveau groups. Well, no, and I, I totally agree with that. Um, but it is generally a bigoted, foregone conclusion that you're automatically part of those groups if you don't agree with everything they're saying. 
And I think that's by design. I honestly think that that's all part of it. And like you said, we have to be careful. We have to, like, you know, kind of dance around the issue. And I honestly, I think that's actually the most alarming part about it. We can't have intelligent discourse about this topic where we even question anything without being worried about being labeled as this other thing that we're not. You know, yeah, 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 definitely. We can't even have we can't even have an intelligent talk about it. It's either you say what they say or want said, or or you don't get it. You get nothing. You know, you, that that's the part of it that bothers me is that it's it, it's almost you're you're a blasphemer, and the way that they conduct themselves on both sides of this issue, if we're going to go because that's how racists behave. That's the other reason why it bothers me so much. That's how bigots behave is they don't realize they're acting just like their opposition. You know, essentially, it becomes an inquisition. They actively run around looking for something to be offended by. They, they run around looking for stuff to justify their hatred. And that's how hate groups function. And that's the direction that some of these groups are taking. And then the, the attitudes and the things that you're willing to put up with at that point, you know, essentially... You know, the things that you're willing to, um, you know, to entertain become more and more clear as it goes on. And that's why, like, actually I want to read a, a quote from one of the comments for that feminist article that you linked earlier. You know, um, a feminist had said, you know, well, you know, men have a sex drive and that leads to rape, blah, 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 blah. So in order to avoid the production of those kinds of things, we need to eliminate the demand. Because no demand equal no profit. And that can be done safely by disabling, to great extents, the sexual drives of human males via safe biological or medical procedures, but not extreme steps like emasculation, castration, etc., in order to drastically reduce rape culture throughout the entire world. That was literally said by a cognitive human being. <laughs> we should yeah. just medically alter men to lower their sex drives. That'll solve everything. Yeah, and I laugh, even though that, like, obviously that's a horrifying suggestion. Um, and if someone believes that, I have no doubt that people actually believe that. Um, but it's, it's obviously it's just incredibly disgusting. Um, but I do, I do want to say, like, I notice this a lot, and I think that there is concerted efforts happening right now to troll feminists and to make feminists look even worse than they actually are. And there are people who go on all these blogs and make comments and do things like that in order to push this idea that it is getting as bad as like a Nazi uh, campaign against white people. And I'm not saying there aren't people who believe things like we should chemically castrate all men. I'm sure they exist. And maybe this was a real comment, but I think there's, also an issue of people trying to make it seem that way. There, there's whole Facebook page industries based on people uh, denouncing feminism, and I'm pretty sure a lot of what they are posting is actually people pretending to be feminists and not actual feminists. Or may, maybe I'm just out of touch with how bad it's gotten, and I haven't met some of these people in person, so I haven't find it hard to believe that anyone hold these positions, but, but I do know that groups like 4chan and places like that go out uh, onto Tumblr, onto Facebook, and make these insane statements because they think it's funny and because they're anti-feminist and because they want to uh, make it look worse than it actually is. 
Well, no, and I don't deny that as a possibility, but I think that also probably goes both ways, too. And that is true also of the, the MRAs. You know, just from what I've heard about them, you know, the little bits, like, they get these comments, like, with rape threats and stuff like that. And I cannot believe for a moment that there's really an organization that is that is pro-rape culture. Um, but And so the thing is, though, is that what you tend to find also, as far as a huge hypocrisy on the part of the social justice movement that I've encountered, is that it is acceptable for them to say, not all. You know, but if you say not all men, not all white men, then it's an LOL, you know, you're just trying to, you know, hurt the conversation and prevent information from getting out and et cetera, et cetera. You know, but if I point out, okay, look, there are feminists who literally feel that we should eradicate mass, you know, men and just keep enough sperm around so that they can <laughs> propagate the species. And then they're quick to say, well, not all feminists feel that way. Those are just extremists. But you're not allowed to even discuss the possibility that any MRA may not be on board with whatever it is that they don't like about MRAs. Oh, yeah, totally. Or the just the fact that it became like a negative thing to mention that not all men are rapists. Like, I get that you're trying to have a conversation about rape and... Um, I, I, I don't know. They, once your movement is in a position where saying something that's just so self-evidently true, so obvious and so uh, <laughs> just just backed up by any statistic or every single person's real life experience that not all men are rapists, if that becomes gauche to say, like you have a problem. You have a problem in your group when you don't want like just very obvious basic facts to be stated. Um, but though, but like you said, like not all Muslims, like this is the one that always just makes me laugh the most because like, obviously not all Muslims are extremists. I, I totally agree with that. It's a valid thing to say, to point out. I point it out when I have the chance, but, and, and feminist anti-oppression activists will totally agree with that. Not all Muslims are, uh, terrorists. Like we, we have to make sure everyone knows that. But if you want to point out that not all men are rapists, it's the exact same argument in a very similar uh, structure, but because it's not all men instead of not all Muslims, it's not it's not a cool thing to say. It's not okay. Well, right, and we're not saying this from the perspective of suggesting that that there are not people that are part of rape culture out there. But it's but that's kind of brings me back to the whole the reason why. I mean, the more we talk about it, that's actually a comment that I was thinking to make earlier. But um, was that what Fresco was talking about manifests in the fact that, for example, we have to be so goddamn careful, you know, how did I spell transgender, transgendered, you know, what words are we using, what terms are we using, you know, we don't want to offend anybody, we don't want to be associated with hate groups. This is the slippery slope. This is the part of it that just makes it so dangerous. You just can't, you're better off just trying to cut the head off the snake and just fixing the damn problem at the core. That's why, you know, we get into these groups, well, well, I want the feminist group to have more time during the TZM Blow Global podcast. And if you're not going along with that, then, you know, you must be racist or sexist or, you know, enter all the above. I don't remember if you were around when that lady, Bodicia Sky, was, was commenting and she was writing blogs. She said, racism and sexism and the zeitgeist movement, four, you know, four alarm alert. You know, she was a member of the movement for a long time, and then, like, immediately we were a sexist and racist organization because we were not addressing the issues as much as she would like. That makes us automatically the other. 
Yeah, I, I remember that when it was happening. That was kind of actually one of my first aware, my, my first becoming aware of these issues. I hadn't really run into it until uh, her specifically kind of pointing these things out. Um, right, and we just laughed it off and thought, well, that's crazy. That kind of attitude will never take root. And then there were several of my more uh, loyal followers to my show, for example, who were on Fans of V Radio, who I never would have thought would ever go to that level. Like, at that time, we literally all laughed at that lady. But I found that more and more members of the Zeitgeist Movement were getting on board with that thinking, that the idea that you just need to go into everything, analyzing for the privilege or the gender or the race or the this or the that, you know, and I, and I argued against them, and I, and I kind of said to them, I'm like, do, do you guys remember, like, what, what we're part of here? Like, do you remember that that's something we discussed, like, way back when this all started? And, it, and it's funny, like, because I brought up the, the article that Peter Joseph wrote called Reverse Racism. And it was in response to people um, talking about, you know, why are there not more black people in your movie? Why are there not more white people in your movie? I'm going to end up actually reading some of that during this broadcast. Because it was really scary to me how much cognitive dissonance there was. Because they immediately all assumed that, well, because this is what they think is right, Fresco must be on board with it, Joseph must be on board with it, you know, obviously they're on board with it. And I'm like, no, actually, it's quite contradictory to what they've been saying all along. You know, um, and they didn't want to hear it. And then, like, the, the level of this and it started to remind me of what it's like when a super capitalist conservative Republican starts trying to suggest that the Bible is in line with their views. They really want that to be true. So they'll just kind of bully their way into thinking that it's true. And if you're not going along with it, well, then you're not speaking for them. You know, and I think, uh, in fact, I'll, I'll just read the, the, the last, one of the last paragraphs here. Peter Joseph says, Frankly, it is nothing but biased and racist for there to be a Puerto Rican Day parade or Italian American Day. It is nothing but biased and racist for there to be a Black Awareness Month. It is nothing but biased and sexist for the idea of the feminist to exist in the arrogance that it often does today. Aren't we interested in equality? If so, it means that you do not promote your institution or gender race ideology above all others. It means you recognize the historical bias against you and work for it to be neutralized, not elevated in a vindictive ego sense. And that vindictive ego sense thing he, he mentions definitely rings true to me because I've noticed as you talk to some of these people, if you bring up, for example, uh, black-on-white violence, there's kind of an undertone of sympathy for the person meeting out that violence and even kind of a, yeah, well, they deserved it because they're white. You know, they're not going to come out and say that. They, they usually will say, well, I oppose that, of course, but. I understand. You know, I understand. Right. I, I get them. You know, that, was, that, was a, that was a similar response you heard with the Charlie Hebdo thing. Like, oh, of, of course it's wrong to kill cartoonists just for drawing pictures. But, you know, they, they were pretty racist cartoons and stuff. like. And, yeah, that that's really um, just just fucked up. Well, um, that's part of the slippery slope, and it, and it heads in a very bleak direction. That's why, like I said, I agree with you that we're not quite there yet. But the, it, see, it really seems to me that there is an intelligent design behind the way things are going and the methods that are being used to just engineer a, a new racism that goes so far as to say that it's not racism, to engineer a new sexism that, of course, will find a way to disqualify itself from being called sexism. You know, um, And that's the part of it that really bothers me, and then it inspires hate groups 
you know, like the new Black Panther Party, there are people in that group that are literally saying, if you want freedom, you got to kill some white babies. Like, that's not a paraphrase. You can find these videos online. And the thing is, though, is that when those people call for genocide of white children, the people who are defending their new definition of racism will still tell you that even calling for genocide of a person based on their race is still not racism if the person happens to be black. You know, right, right. and that's just asinine. You know, and let me finish this one part here. Uh, Peter Joseph says, I remember reading about Martin Luther King's apprehension to the idea of black power. He knew. He understood that to try to make your race, sex, or the like outstanding is equality, um, no, is equality as biased as the oppressive forces that started the sad trend of inequality we see today. Is there a dire need to generate more equality across race, gender, and class lines? Yes, but that doesn't mean your race, gender, class happens to be special. We are human, period. You know, so that was like, and those words to me anyway are pretty damn clear. And the way that people would try to reword it or say, well, that's not what PJ really meant. He meant this was another example of the totally emotional and irrational nature of the way this activism tends to become which is the biggest reason it's not, in my opinion, com you know, compatible with the way Fresco does things, the way Joseph does things, because of the fact that it's not rational, because of the fact that it's totally emotional, because of the fact that you find yourself doing things that are completely irrational in the name of following this cause, that is a dangerous direction to go. No matter where you're at, we're supposed to be about science and analytical and critical thinking. And the responses I generally get was, well, we, of course we want an RBE, but we'll never get an RBE unless we address this privilege problem. And they don't understand the fact that the privilege problem is created by the system that the RBE is going to cure. And we spend a whole lot of time, like, look at the energy we have to spend to have this conversation, to dig through all of the PC, politically correct stuff that we're supposed to say in order to be allowed to even talk about this. And mind you, even when we're done, no matter how many rational points we make, I'm still a white, straight, cisgendered male, and you're still a cisgendered gay male. So therefore, anything we said, no matter how rational it is, well, that's immediately subject to just being passed off because, after all, we are of this race or this orientation. And yeah, and I, and I mean, like, ultimately, I'm... I'm not talking to those people like anyone who is really just writing me off because I'm a white man who isn't trans. Um, that's just, I, there's nothing I can say to those people. So there's nothing I need to say to those people. They're just, they, they're, they're too far gone as far as being able to make any connection with my point of view or my lived experience in the world. Um, the, the stuff about PJ and Jock, like, as far as what the zeitgeist movement and the Venus project is pushing for, I think it makes a lot of sense to not want to focus on race and gender and any of these other things, because we're talking about the larger system and trying to make a society wide shift to a better way of doing things. And so in the context of the zeitgeist movement and the Venus project, I think it totally makes sense to say, yeah, we're not, we're not concerned with feminist issues or race issues or things like that. But at the same time, I know that the, like, these are fringe groups, the zeitgeist movement and the Venus project. Like we're not, uh, we're not poised to implement the RBE in, in this decade or any time just really coming up soon. Maybe that'll change, but as it looks right now, 
this, this isn't the direction society's moving in. And so, like, in the context of using different strategies to address different issues, I, I still think it's beneficial to, even as Peter said in the, the I liked the way he worded it in that paragraph, um, you don't want to be doing this as an ego thing, but you do want to recognize your historical oppressions and work to correct them. I think that's the best version of feminism. That's the best version of anti-racism. And I think those things are valuable and need to be uh, pursued further. Uh, but there does need to be um, conversations surrounding like how we're going about that and how we're um, treating people as we're doing that. Because um, like you get into this thing where uh, they'll say, you know, you can't tell black people how to fight their oppression. Like the, the idea of um, uh, tone policing, tone policing comes up a lot. If you're saying, you know, this black person was just really rude to me and called me a white asshole and said, my opinion means nothing because I'm white. Um, they'll say, oh, you, you know, you're just tone policing. You're not listening to the experiences of this black person, um, which might be true, but I'm just saying we, we all do live in these countries and on this planet together. And if we want to get along with each other, like not only do we need to listen to the experiences of women and of black people and of trans people and what's going on for them, they, they do need to also listen to our experiences and how this is affecting us and how we can work together with them to hopefully do something good um, about their issues and about the larger scale issues, the class issues and the economic issues that are really um, what's, I, I think, what is driving a lot of this. Maybe not all of it, but a lot of it. No, I agree with that. And I um, I think that, you know, what, but what bothers me, though, um, is that, yeah, you, you know, we can say we don't talk to those people, but this social engineering thing is like a virus. You know, like, not every member of the Nazi party started out as someone who could consciously stick a Jewish person in an oven. You know, it does, but it takes a gradual, you know, step up, and then eventually you become more and more accepting of more and more hateful ideas. Um, and then you also get social pressured to go along with those ideas. You know, um, you're not allowed to speak outside of whatever it is they, they want, and if you do, then there's all these social implications and if you've identified yourself as part of this group and it becomes part of your identity, then you feel pressured to go along with it no matter where it goes, particularly if there's certain people that are up in the group. Now, um, I want to bring up uh, another thing that I, I pointed out was that I feel that privilege absolutely exists, but I also don't think, and this is another problem that I see with the way that it's being addressed, privilege, just like racism, is also a gender-neutral race-neutral phenomenon that happens sociologically. And the example that I would give is I used to work at a McDonald's that the, the store manager had just been through a bad divorce, so tended to be more or less negative towards men. Her direct assistant was a lesbian who was actively against men. And what I noticed was there was immediately a hierarchy that was arranged entirely around homosexual females. And the white uh, or not just why actually race wasn't part of it, it was just gender orientation. The the males in the situation were way on the bottom, and you could see it very clearly. If you were a straight male, your chance of getting a raise was very little. I never met a single white straight male 
well, once again, I just keep throwing the race on there, even though it wasn't relevant to the story. That's how you get conditioned with this stuff. There was not a single male who got promoted to even crew trainer, let alone crew chief or manager. Not the entire two years that I worked there. Not one. Um, and most of the management were lesbians. And then the, the next class of citizens was straight females. And then the next class of citizens was gay men. And there was a gay male manager. There was, you know, female managers. But most of them were lesbians. And it was just kind of understood that they run everything. And the privilege that would manifest was an example. If there was a lesbian girl, for example, who could not run two different stations at once. This was something that they expected everybody else in the store to do. She was allowed not to do it. She just happened to be a lesbian. And I remember asking the gay male manager, well, why is it that you're yelling at me for having trouble with this, but you have no problem with her not doing it? And he's like, well, she can't do it, so don't worry about it and just get your work done. So it was immediately assumed that, therefore, this girl had the privilege of not having to run two stations in the restaurant because she was, a, you know, because she was part of the club. You know, and that's why I say to people that it's important that you don't, you know, that we recognize that privilege exists, but we need to understand that a privilege can form at a dinner table at a Denny's of a group of teenagers, and it can be formed based on who's the most popular, you know, who's the most attractive girl. You know, attractive girls tend to get privilege. You know, they're immediately, whatever they say, you know, everybody at the table is just like baiting and, and listening, and they really want to hear what they have to say. Attractive males have the same privilege, you know, things like that. You know, the, people are not conscious of it, and what's ending up um, becoming a, as a result, like I said earlier about Occupy, at certain Occupy camps, you were privileged if you were a person of color, a person of a different gender orientation, a person of a different sexual orientation, you were, your point of view was immediately more sought after. If you were a person who was a white male, you know, straight or whatever, then you, you immediately got knocked further and further down the hierarchy. Now, all of this was supposedly done in the name of equality, but that isn't the result. And when we think that privilege only exists for white people, you know, who happen, you know, and then even more so for males, you're not even really looking at the fact that this phenomenon can and will happen in any social circumstance where any of those above factors are not even a factor. You know, that, that's the part I don't think people want to address, is that if you happen to be, for example, a black citizen in Africa, in certain parts of Africa right now, you're the majority, you know, and the people who are not are the minority. You know, like Stormcloud's Gathering, for example, he lives on a, an island right now where there's not very many white people, and he's immediately addressed as being the minority, because he is. It's not that there's some perfect, you know, uh, conspiracy going on to make it so that only white people benefit from this. This tends to happen in any social climate. And that's the part I think that um, bothers me a lot, is that people are not rationally considering that. They're not considering that they're creating a new circumstance of privilege every time they walk into an activist situation and start making sure that white men are not allowed to talk. You know? Yeah, 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 totally. I like, I like to call the, ki the kinds of experience you're talking about right now, and you've also talked about how growing up you went to a school with a lot of black people and you were picked on for being white. I believe that's true. Yep, yep. Um, so, like, yeah, those kind of microcosms of oppression against white people or against white men in the restaurant you're talking about are straight people. I guess there was a very uh, queer, uh, pro-queer uh, idea, ideology going on there. The, those kinds of situations are just, like, damned facts. Like, we can't talk about those situations because they 
go against the larger structures that are in place. Like I think in most places in America right now, it's it's probably true to say that white people are the ones who have the advantages in most situations. But most situations is not all situations. It's not every workplace. It's not every school. It's not every city. It's not every dinner table. And if we can't talk about each situation as it actually exists and address the the specific dynamics of that situation when we want to just collapse everything into this one larger narrative because to even talk about what might be happening at that one particular restaurant is going to somehow damage the conversation about how gay people are oppressed in the country. The idea that these lesbian women are kind of taken over this restaurant and only letting other gay people or other women advance. Um, we, it's, I, I, it becomes counterproductive to their own narrative to want to deny things like that because I think that in accepting that in in saying yes like your experience at that restaurant is valid and we also need to deal with that as well as the larger issues rather than oh we're no we're dealing with these larger issues so we, we you can't talk about that and even talking about that is is racist is sexist is problematic um, it's it's completely counterproductive as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can see. Well, right. And I basically, they, the reason I bring it up is not to say that there is not a massive problem with homosexuals having problems. Obviously, what I'm trying to get across to people is that the, the issue of privilege and hierarchy can and will exist. And, I, and it doesn't go away just because you eliminate white men from the equation. It just turns into something else. It just it finds other ways. And you know, like for example, I wouldn't even say necessarily that I think that the the lesbian managers at that restaurant were going out of their way to even create that circumstance. Like I, I think that more or less they probably guided it in that direction, but I don't think they had a meeting about it. You know, I think that it just happened because there is a there was a minority of straight males in the situation and therefore they created a hierarchy around themselves. You know, and that's the part of it that I think that bothers me is is that people are not recognizing that that effect will happen regardless of the races of everybody involved, regardless of the genders of everybody involved, regardless of the orientation of everybody involved, you know, et cetera. And if you're not careful, then you'll find it's happening right under your nose. And, and the problem is, is that, and this is the part of the, the seductive part of the slippery slope, is that if you do find yourself in that situation, you'll be thinking, yeah. You know, see how they like it. You know, um, which brings yeah. me to the, you know, to the uh, another point that it gives me an example of how the the slippery slope can be a problem, is that it's been found, for example, that domestic violence against men met out by women is a serious issue. Is it as big as men beating up women? No, but it's getting pretty damn close. Um, and depending on whose statistics you review, some people are even suggesting that women are more likely to hit men than the other way around. Um, there was an excellent episode of the the What Would You Do show where they basically staged incidents where a woman was beating up a man, um, and then they also staged incidents of a man beating up a woman. The the innocent or basically rather the bystanders in the situation immediately reacted if the man is slapping a woman around, like they jumped on that like right away. When a woman is slapping a man around, they don't react at all or very little. If anything, they start encouraging the woman. And 
this was another example of, once again, the dangerous slippery slope that's changing the way society views things, is that I'm noticing that domestic violence against men is starting to slide into the same category. Because when they interview people, because they interview people, well, why didn't you do anything? One of them said, I assumed he had to have done something to deserve it. You know, maybe he was cheating on her. These are all the same kind of lame things that people would say, say back in the 20s when you're, you know, when a husband was beating up their wife. Right. And you called the police. They must have done something. You know, and I think one that was also really disturbing is I was watching an episode of, uh, I think it was like, it was like a divorce court kind of show. And the, the woman in the situation had like, just had made a habit out of brutally beating this man. And there were police reports and pictures and, and stuff like that. And the reaction of everybody in the audience was that they thought it was funny. I mean, they all still kind of acknowledged that she was in the wrong, but it by no means was reacted to in the same way that it would have been if it was pictures of a woman being beaten up. You know, and, and I noticed, like, because in many cases in court, if you're the victim of female-on-male violence and you're the guy, they tend to kind of laugh at you. There's a lot of circumstances where they don't do anything about it at all. Um, and this guy just happened to be lucky enough that that judge had presided over court cases where women had murdered men. And this judge was very assertive with him. He's like, you need to get like you know something done about this. This lady is going to seriously hurt you eventually. You know, but because those cases are considered to be in the minority, a lot of people are not conscious of that. Now, the only reason that this bothers me is, once again, you can have this position that it's not okay for women to hit men and then therefore, you know, not be in support of men hitting women. You know, I don't support men hitting women. I don't support anybody hitting anybody. But you're not allowed to talk about that. You, you, you have to say, well, no, 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 we're going to discuss this issue of men beating up women. You know, they make rape a gender-only issue, too. You're not allowed to talk about men being raped. You yeah, know. And, and, and the thing like with the male domestic abuse idea is uh, the, like one of the reasons it's not taken seriously is because, you know, men are supposed to be tough. Men are, men are thought to be stronger than women. Like by, by not taking those issues seriously, they're actually like participating in like literally what I would say is the legitimate part, a, a legitimate aspect of, patriarchy um and th- this is an argument some feminists will make that that the idea that men are inherently stronger than women and so therefore any violence against men by women is you know to be laughed at is an idea that stems from this idea that men are inherently superior um because you know they're violence of like this inferior little woman against a man couldn't mean anything. But like, meanwhile, you know, if you're throwing things, you're using a knife, you're doing something, you can obviously do serious damage. You can kill somebody. You can really injure someone. Um, but these things get laughed at. And, and that is a problem with sexism against men. And you can trace it back to sexist attitudes against women. And it's weird because that's, that's one of these areas where things get really tangled up because, because the origin of it comes from this idea that men are better than women, men are stronger than women, but it gets flipped around to where the the end result is this this sexism against men that's happening, this prejudice against uh, talking about the violence of women against men. Well, right, and that's... God, I remember I was talking... I want to say it was actually to Bodicea Sky about the issue that, that boys are, are raped and... The fact that she was willing to say, well, that's statistically insignificant. 
um, that's where you start to run into a problem wherein I'm like, well, I bet it was pretty goddamn statistically significant to the victim, you know, but, and it doesn't mean that I think that women being raped is therefore somehow okay, nor is that was ever what was implied. Um, one of the cultural things that I see that seems to erupt out of all of this is, for example, um, there's a real women have curbs movement. And I get it, actually. I'm supportive of that. But generally, you don't see these same women beating down the doors of overweight men looking for a date. You know, there, there, there is the dad bod phenomenon. I don't know if you've seen this, but the, the praise of the dad bod, just someone with a little bit of a beer belly, you know, not the six pack, not huge arms, just the kind of like schlubby looking guy, bit of a bit of a belly. I've seen these um, these things coming um, out, and I, I maybe I notice them because like I, I kind of like that. I kind of I'm I'm not into the super like buff guys. A little little dad bod is a good thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, but but there is some some of that for sure. But um, yeah, not not to the extent of like I don't know. There there is that double standard of women want tall men, but if men want a skinny woman, like they're a monster or something, right. you're being fat phobic. Right. Um, and another one. Sorry, this is kind of a jumping topic, but it just reminded me of it, and it really bothers me. It's the the idea that if you aren't sexually interested in trans people, you're transphobic. I talked about this on my Facebook page once. I was um, posting about it because there was this idea that if you were attracted to someone who, you know, presents as a woman, is a is a trans woman, um, and then you find out they're a trans woman and you're no longer attracted to them, that's that's a transphobic attitude. And like for me, uh, it would be the other way because I'm attracted to men, and I was just like, that I can't. It can't be transphobic. Like trans men like, unfortunately, just don't have the kind of body that I'm attracted to, the kind of specific characteristics that I would want when having sex with someone. So, like, I I, I find some men, some trans men, like, attractive physically. Like, the way they look is, like, incredibly cute, and they, they always grow facial hair, and, like, some of them just look really good, but I still wouldn't be able to be in a relationship with them because I wouldn't be able to have the kind of sex that I want to have with them. And it's... It's, it just gets to this really weird place when you're saying, like, oh, yeah, you can be totally in favor of trans rights. You can be totally cool with trans people, supportive, be friends with them if you meet one that you like. But if you aren't interested in them sexually, that's transphobic. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. There, there's tons of these these issues like this that we, you can, like, clip on or, like like, catch on and get really angry about and then that's one that just really like got to me because I was like no that's it's ridiculous well right and I I actually you know because I have transgendered friends um, who are making the the change and it's it's going very well for them and I've also met some that are it's not going so well for Um, and you're not allowed to really discuss that either you know and I I guess I just kind of break social rules as a habit but um I think, well, this was another actually point when it comes to the the transsexual issue is that bothers me is like the entire creation of the concept of cisgendered. And I had several con, you know conversations with some of them about this because like one of my, I wouldn't call her a friend necessarily, but an associate, somebody that I know who is transgendered. I said, look, you identified as a woman. I call you a woman. That's the end of it. 
you know, I don't, I don't need some special label. If you want to be a woman, then you're a woman, and that's cool. And I have no problem with that. You know, but that's not enough. <laughs> you know, no, no, no. Now we also need to be a, a special class because we're transgendered, and and you need to be considered to be in some way privileged because you know. To me, if anything, that puts a a spotlight on their differences rather than making them equal. And it also just enables these social justice warriors to have another way to hook somebody. Well, you're your natural gender, so you don't get it. You know, um, and that's why I, once again, it just comes back to the, why these conversations are dangerous to have in the first place and why infecting your activism with it can create so many problems. And I tend to wonder, I mean, I, I haven't been to many meetings lately, but I tend to wonder, for example, you know, how many people leave zeitgeist activist groups or Occupy groups or whatever because of stuff like this that is not, these are all the symptoms, you know, but we have to spend so much time investing in energy on this at the expense of the things that will actually cure all of it, you know. Uh, just just uh, let you know, I got I got about 10 more minutes and then sure. I probably got to head out. That's okay, I got to leave too. Cool. But, um, this has been a really great conversation so far, Aaron, and I, I hope things have been going well with you. Are you still doing Ponder Talk Radio? Uh, it's, uh, no, I, I only, I did a, like 13 episodes of that show and, uh, kind of wrapped it up. I kind of, kind of burnt out on it, but the podcast I'm doing now is called Seriously Wrong, uh, and it's spelled S-R-S-L-Y, Seriously Wrong is just W-R-O-N-G, so you can find that on Facebook or Google, search for it if anyone wants to, uh, listen to those podcasts. I do it with another guy, uh, Sean Bollier, who was the head of the Pirate Party here in uh, Canada for about a year, I think. And this in this last national election, he actually ran for national office with the Pirate Party here in our district, got 188 votes, 188 votes. He likes to point that out. Uh, it's kind of a comedy slash politics show. So uh, if anyone wants to check that out, it's uh, it's, it's there on the Internet for you. All right, excellent. Well, you know, I've always enjoyed having you on my show, and the conversations we have are always great. Um, I guess in the the final ten minutes that we have here, uh, going back to the stuff that you know was linked on the conversation, you know, that erupted essentially over the the curfew for men. Yeah. Um, you know, remember that these people typically will say, "Well, as feminists, we're not you know misandrists. We don't hate men." You know, we, we're not bigots. We just want equality. And I remember, like the the author of the article said, uh, let's see if I can find the exact quote, but it was pretty nasty. Okay, uh, like she basically said, you know, men are the emo- over emotional and irrational gender. It's in their nature. They can't help it. How is that not a misandrist statement? Well, if if your definition of sexism is that you can't be uh, sexist against men, then misandry doesn't exist. But yeah, definitely. Obviously, this person hates men, or like <laughs> it seems pretty obvious from what they're saying. From their "every man should have a curfew" article and this comment you just read, um, to say they they don't hate men or that hating men isn't a thing in the feminist community is obviously pretty ridiculous. Well, right, and that's. Uh, in addition, um, we were talking, actually, there was a, an article that I brought up earlier uh, on my Facebook group for fans of E-Radio, but it's student who questioned, questioned consent workshops met with shouts of rapist. 
basically this guy just said, look, I don't need a workshop to tell me not to rape people. I, I already don't do that. You know, um, but it presents, but they really present this rape culture issue as if, and I've even heard them say all men are potential rapists. I honestly feel that in order to be a rapist, you got to be broken somehow. It's like being a child molester. There is nothing sexually interesting to me about forcing myself on somebody. Um, in fact, I've personally, anyway, if I've ever sensed that anything was not going along well for my partner, it was an immediate turnoff. You know, maybe that's just the way I'm wired or something. I've always been kind of addicted to causing pleasure, not, you know, creating circumstances like that. You know, but... Yeah. But this guy basically, this is another reason why I say that, you know, that's slippery slope. This guy's been threatened with violence. He's been called a racist, but even though he wasn't even saying anything about race. He's been called a sexist, you know, um, just because he suggested that the, the notion that I have to go to a workshop to know how to not rape somebody is ridiculous. You know? Yeah, and the, the idea all men are potential. Like, I, I think what maybe they're trying to say in that is that as a woman walking around, you don't know who might be a rapist. Like I'm, I'm not a potential rapist. Like I have no interest in having sex with women and men. It's not, it's not that hard. Like if I, if I want to find a man to have sex with, they're all over the internet. It's pretty easy to uh, meet someone and do that if I want to. Um, so like I, even if the idea of forcing myself on someone was somehow exciting, like I, I would never need to do that. Um, and most men have no interest in doing that. And most men don't do that. And so just like, as I was saying before, the the whole not all men thing, but um, just what you said about all men are potential rapists reminded me of this one point that I wanted to give feminist credit for because I'd never thought about this before and like I'm a pretty big guy and like sometimes it's like I walk through this park to get to and from the bus stop near my house and sometimes it's dark when I'm walking through there and ever since I uh, started seeing a lot of feminists talking about just sort of how they feel walking around at night I've been a lot more careful with how I act if I'm passing a woman in the park like I don't try to like scowl at them or like, like I'm, I'm trying to like give them some space, like just make sure that they see that I'm not like threatening to them because I've had a few experiences where women I actually knew um, were passing me on the street and then they just kind of, Oh, 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 Aaron, it's you. You know, I, I was scared for a second there. This big guy with a hood was just like walking up quickly behind me and you scared me. I thought, you know, maybe they're going to attack me. And like, I don't have that experience. I don't have this experience of being scared of most people I pass on the street. And if I was a small little woman, I could see why that would be terrifying and why like you would be scared of passing men on the street because you never know. Well, no, and I, and I definitely don't have a problem with that. I mean, I can't say that when I was in, when I was living in the ghetto that I didn't give more pause to the fact that gang members were around me. I might want to walk on the other side of the street Right, you know, right. but I, I didn't assume that every gang member I saw was automatically going to attack me, but it was kind of a stupid idea not to be conscious of the fact that they were gang members and the gang members tend to commit acts of violence. You know, it, that's, it's, there definitely is an issue there, but um, the last one I'm going to bring up uh, that I think also kind of points to the things that concern me was an article, uh, kindergarten teacher denies Legos to boys in name of gender equity. <laughs> A kindergarten teacher in Bainbridge Island, Washington, actively denies her male students the opportunity to play with Lego blocks in order to encourage her female students to play with them. 
Karen Keller bars the boys in her class from playing with the colorful blocks, even going so far as to lie to them about their opportunity to play. Quote, I always tell the boys you're going to have a turn, and I'm like, yeah, when hell freezes over, in my head, Keller told the Bainbridge Island Review. I tell them you'll have a turn because I don't want them to feel bad. Keller does this because she saw the boys in her class gravitating towards the blocks during their free choice playtime while the girls flocked to dolls and crayons. Keller's solution was to deny the blocks to the boys who wanted to play with them in order to encourage the girls to play with them. The review article offers no indications about how Keller gets the girls to play with something of which they have no interest. Keller had originally tried to entice the girls by providing pink and purple Legos, but it wasn't enough. <laughs> I don't have time to read the entire thing, unfortunately. I probably will do a whole show or something about this later. But she said, um, Keller had found research finding that Lego play accelerates development and helps with spatial and math skills. And since Keller believes that gender stereotypes are ingrained into girls at a young age, well, something had to be done. Um, I just feel like we are still so far behind in promoting gender equity. So basically, because she thinks that Legos will develop brains, she's preventing boys from playing with those Legos so that she can get girls to play with them instead. Right. Instead of just making sure... Those, girls brain, those girl brains instead of the boy brains. Right. And that's because we need gender equity. So let's yeah, just... it's, it's so weird because, like, I don't know, maybe... Maybe I, I like I don't buy the idea that gender is entirely a social construct. I think maybe girls just aren't as interested in building things as boys are. Um, like maybe maybe that's not true. Maybe it is all just because of society. But maybe, maybe there are just some innate differences that that drive boys to that. And maybe it's culture. I don't know. But I don't really see a problem with letting kids play with the toys they want to play with. Like that's obviously insane. Well, right, and that's but that further proves once again to the the dangerous slippery slope attitude. Like I doubt it even occurred to that woman that essentially what she was doing was limiting the brain development of the boys that are entrusted to her to be educated, in the name of making sure that they're just as stupid as the girls. Is is her viewpoint? She doesn't want to think of it that way. I doubt she'd ever admit that that's what she was thinking, but wh- rather than just saying, "Hey, let's all play with Legos." The approach was just to make sure the boys don't have them. Yeah, yeah. And that's at that point, that's almost like eugenic thinking. You know, like, let's just limit the the IQs of this gender, you know, which is, once again, ironically, exactly the same kind of crap that you would get out of Victorian-era, let's prevent women from being allowed to read, let's prevent Negroes from being allowed to read, because we don't want them to develop brains, because if they get smart, well, then they're going to be dangerous. Yeah, or or the the whole like genesis of Planned Parenthood. Like I I I'm glad Planned Parenthood exists now and offers free services to women and stuff. But uh, there there was a lot of racism in its in its founding and and trying to basically prevent as many black babies from existing as possible. Um, so yeah, th- those those kinds of weird eugenic ideas are this kind of like let's. Um, it kind of goes back to the privilege thing I was talking about. Like, oh, men, men have this privilege of um, being better at, at spatial, um, uh, I don't know what you call it, spatial brain um, activities. That That's a thing that shows up in study after study, that men are better at those things. So, like, somehow the way to make that equal is to prevent them from playing with blocks and so maybe it doesn't develop fully. It's like... <sighs> Yeah. Why don't we just lock them in a dark room so that they can be blind? 
Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. There we go. Then so that, would, that would that would really get rid of their privilege. That would. Yeah. You know, that that's why I said that that the part that creeps me out about it that makes it dangerous is that these people don't recognize that this method of thinking tends to take you down a dark path, and the further you go down there, the more you're willing to accept it. And that's the the reason I brought up the Nazis as an example. And you know, the the typical German farm boy who ended up working at a concentration camp didn't start out as somebody who would be comfortable with the idea of torching his Jewish neighbors. It happened over time. It happened over indoctrination. It happened over a socially engineered, with an agenda, you know, campaign was met out against them. And that's why I tell people to be really freaking careful. Because, yeah, we're not there yet. Yeah, we're not even close to there yet. I, I get that. But the, there's a dangerous, slippery slope. That's the word I keep using. That I, this is the reason why I feel that we were better off in the zeitgeist movement when this topic didn't even come up. When when we had our big international global meetings in TeamSpeak, everybody got to talk. We didn't spend a bunch of time analyzing was this person white, was this person black, was this person you know this gender, that gender, because none of that was necessary. Because we all, I mean, hell, there's chapters in the zeitgeist movement that are comprised completely of non-white people. No, nobody ever brought it up. I, I want to say, I, I just uh, just reading the chat room here. I want to read this comment and talk about it really briefly. Um, it says someone just typed in, uh, "It's a fine line between being politically incorrect and being offensive." What makes this annoying, if not offensive, is that it's outrage on behalf of straight white men over the most extreme examples, which are the exceptions and not the rule. And like. I, I agree with what they're saying that these examples are extreme and that they're exceptions and not the rule, but I don't agree that it's offensive to talk about them. I don't agree that it's a problem to acknowledge these things like you with that particular workplace where the lesbian woman and the gay men were kind of up top and the other people were down at the bottom. I, I don't think it's a problem to hold both those things in your mind at once, that that situation existed and was a problem and that the larger structures exist and is a problem. And just because we're having this conversation right now uh, doesn't mean that it's, it's, not, it's not a problem to talk about these extreme examples because they do exist and they are part of reality. No, I don't disagree with that either. I think though that what people need to recognize is that going forward, especially if they're true if there's any truth to what they believe, which is that there's a white male majority that are in positions of power, spending all of your time alienating them and making it so that they can't talk about a given topic is not the best way to win them over to your cause. And it doesn't mean that you cater to them, it doesn't mean that you don't bring it up yourself, but you know, honestly the what I'm concerned about going forward is is that these people need to recognize the way that Martin Luther King and Gandhi and other people went around doing things. And it wasn't about spending a bunch of time picking fights with anybody who you happen to think was, you know, uh, a white person or happen to think this or that. It, and and I, that's why I'm concerned about the future. And to be honest with you, I don't think that any of this is an accident. I think that this is typical socially engineered response. Uh, a group like Occupy terrifies the 1%. Um, and now those groups have largely, once again, all kind of devolved back into their own little groups. The feminists in the group don't talk to the men in the group, you know, and the black people in the group don't talk to the white people in the group who don't go along with whatever they want them to go along with. You know, and that's, that's what they want. At the end of the day, they want us fighting each other. And I don't think for a moment, for example, that they sit around and analyze necessarily 
the race of everybody involved in so much as the income level that they're involved, which brings us back to the classism we talked about as we wrap this up, was that they understand that if the poor people in the South, which, mind you, I've lived in the South among the poverty-stricken poor, and they have it just as hard as the people in the ghettos in the North. Make no mistake. Those people live in substandard housing. They frequently don't have any utilities, et cetera, et cetera. It's a horrible place to live. But they know that if the white people in the South, whom they encourage to be racist, ever teamed up with the black people in the North, who are now being encouraged to being racist, that there's a serious threat to them. And we are causing a problem for that unification to ever exist by continually dividing everybody up by our differences, like George Carlin said. So any closing thoughts to you, from you before you go? Um, yeah, I just, I think I just want to say that, like, I, I do see all these problems that we're talking about and I, and I do think it's an issue and I think it's an issue, especially in universities right now. Uh, and one other point that, um, I mentioned John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry earlier, the, the two black professors who do a, a podcast sometimes. Um, one of the other points that he made is that the people, most of the people in Black Lives Matter talking about these things um, having these student protests at the colleges are some of the most privileged people who have ever existed. Even <laughs> these black people, they're, they're, they're black people at Harvard. They're black people at Yale. Like, yes, maybe they're experiencing some microaggression, some, some racism at those campus colleges, but we have to keep in mind that they are extremely privileged people and that their experience is not the experience of most black people living in ghettos and most black people living on the streets. Um, so that's just one thing I wanted to mention, but uh, the, the larger point I wanted to say is that those, those two guys, I like them, and there's a whole bunch of academics and people pushing back against this. I'm The reason I'm not that worried about it becoming an issue of, say, a white genocide or, or a real problem against white people or white men, I, there it is a real problem. There are real problems, but I don't see it getting to that terrible level is because I do see so much pushback against it already. Um, I see people fighting this. And so I, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I, I agree that it's a problem, but I, but I do think that it's already being addressed and like conversations like the one we're having are happening all over the place. And I think that's a good thing. Well, I'm glad that they are, and I'm, I'm glad to be part of one. Thank you again, Aaron, for coming on, and I, I look forward to, you know, maybe one of these days I'll get to come on your radio show again at some point and talk to, you, you know, your listeners. And Yeah, um, definitely. Thanks again for coming on. I know you got to go, so I'll go ahead and close off without you, and um, uh, we'll talk again later. Cool. Thank you. I'll see you later. So that was my guest, Aaron Moritz, um, an excellent uh, conversationalist so far as issues of people um, going forward. And I hope you've enjoyed this broadcast. Uh, once again, uh, B Radio is a donation-funded effort, and I hate to even bring it up, but basically at this point, I work for you. Um, my, I'm more or less unemployed at this point, and I say more or less because essentially the place that I work now just doesn't have any hours anymore, and I'm trying to switch out. So... If you've enjoyed this podcast, I'll have more time to be able to do it and less time looking for odd jobs if um, I can get donations. And I appreciate all the donations that have come in so far. I'm only looking for a couple hundred bucks a month to be able to float by, and um, I'll be okay. So I'm not looking to look you know, fat and high on the hog on this, but I essentially will be your employee during the time that I'm getting donations. And um, I will, once again, look into getting a 
more shows out there. You know, once again, let me know what topics you want addressed. And if you have any comments uh, about any of the shows from previous that you'd like me to bring up in a future show, uh, don't hesitate to let me know. So thanks again, and I'm going to leave you with the same clip that we started with, some words of wisdom from George Carlin. Now to balance the scale, I'd like to talk about some things that bring us together, things that point out our similarities instead of our differences, because that's all you ever hear about in this country is our differences. That's all the media and the politicians are ever talking about, the things that separate us, things that make us different from one another. That's the way the ruling class operates in any society. They try to divide the rest of the people. They keep the lower and the middle classes fighting with each other so that they, the rich, can run off with all the fucking money. <laughs> Fairly simple thing happens to work. You know anything different, that's what they're going to talk about. Race, religion, ethnic and national background, jobs, income, education, social status, sexuality, anything you can do, keep us fighting with each other so that they can keep going to the bank. You know how I describe the economic and social classes in this country? The upper class keeps all of the money, pays none of the taxes. The middle class pays all of the taxes, does all of the work. The poor are there just to scare the shit out of the middle class. Keep them showing up at those jobs.